Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die... We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that you are the source of all light. And as you said in the beginning, let there be light, so your word, in your word, you give light to our souls. And so we ask today that you would pour out upon us this light, through spirit of wisdom and understanding, and that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, that our hearts and our minds might be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It used to be said that there are two things you should never discuss in polite company. Do you remember what those two things are? Religion and politics. Now, I haven't heard this saying in in quite a while, and I'm beginning to wonder if either it's not true or if we no longer have polite company to keep. (laughs) But, But if it's true... Why are these two topics often taboo for cordial conversation? I mean, should we never talk 
about either? The potential problem, as you know, is not inherent in the topics, is it? No, the potential problem comes from strong opinions and personal convictions that stem from these topics. And sometimes, the stronger the opinion, the more venomous the vitriol. This is not to say that opinions are bad. Let me be clear. On the contrary, as long as our opinions are informed by truth, they're good. But every opinion is not the same. They do vary in their degree of importance. For example, you may believe, as as I believe, and I hope that you do, that there is one God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is my personal conviction that I share with the Christian church throughout the ages, and more importantly, it is a conviction informed by the Word of God. It is an essential doctrine of the historic Christian church. Now, it's also my opinion that it's good to use real wine when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I mean, I I like it. Do you like it? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but let me be clear. Whether we use wine or grape juice is not of primary importance. In fact, it's not even of secondary importance. Maybe tertiary? I don't know. But it's an opinion that I'm, I'm free to hold and even practice, but it's not a doctrine worthy of dogma. The problem occurs when we either reduce points of primary importance to secondary or if we elevate points of secondary or tertiary importance to primary. And I would imagine that all of us have encountered people who consider all of their personal convictions to be of primary importance, non-negotiable. Worthy of fighting for them. I've known people who lack the discernment to distinguish between primary and secondary or even tertiary matters. And in most cases, I'm sure you have these friends too, for them, everything is of primary importance. Right? I mean, they have never seen a hill too small to die on. I call them undiscerning gladiators, right? But this is nothing new. In fact, it's as age old, and we see it here in the early Roman church. What we are susceptible to today, they were susceptible then. The topics may be different, but the problem, in essence, is the same as is the solution. And that's this. And I try not to use too many cliches when I preach, but I got to use this one. We have to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. 
We have to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. As Christians, we must remember that in non-essentials, we enjoy liberty. In essentials, unity. And in all things, charity. And so let's look at this together. It is helpful to remember that the church in Rome likely came out of Paul's ministry when he was in prison there. And that early church was built on the foundation of early Jewish converts. And it continued with Gentile converts. Now, immediately start thinking about that. Former Jews become Christians. Former Gentiles and pagan worshipers become Christians. And they're in the same church together. The Roman church, we could say, at the very least, was an eclectic mix of Christians with diverse backgrounds, and they were in the process of learning to worship and live together in the beauty of Christian community. But with varying backgrounds come what? Baggage, right? Carrying baggage with them, notably for those who had lived for decades as devout Jews. I mean, imagine this with me. If you had spent your life, regardless of what age you are, what age I am, if you had spent the bulk of your life under the rigid Judaic dietary laws, and then you find yourself at the dinner table with a pig eater. But if you'd enjoyed unkosher delicacies all your life, such rigid repulsion would seem, well, it would seem incongruent with the liberty of the gospel. Or what if you had recently been rescued from pagan idolatry in which you had seen meat? And sacrifices offered to these pagan gods. And, and what if coming in contact with that same meat, it led you back in your mind to all of the debauchery of that pagan religion? Wouldn't you have some reservations, even though you are free to eat as you want to eat? Now, Scripture is very clear. Christians, after all, are free to eat all kinds of foods. Jesus taught this to His disciples in Mark chapter 7. God declared it directly to Peter in Acts chapter 10. The ceremonial law and its dietary restrictions have ceased under the new covenant. In this sense, we could say everything is kosher to a Christian. But the liberty we enjoy as Christians includes not only the freedom to partake, but what else? The freedom to abstain. Some fry shrimp, others shallots. Some roast pork, others potatoes. The second example that Paul gives us, likely also influenced by the early Jewish Christians in the church, is regarding holy days. In my understanding of this text, Paul is not referencing the Lord's Day, which is clearly commanded in his moral law, but he is more than likely referring to the festivals or the holy days of the Jewish religion. And imagine this, if you will. Imagine if 
almost your whole life, you had kept those holy days, those festivals. And in in our context, let me help you here. Imagine if someone, like some of our Puritan forefathers, came to you and said, no more Christmas. We are not doing Christmas any longer. How would you respond? I mean, I think that you would mourn. I think some of us would revolt. What are you talking about? I'm going to keep Christmas for Jesus, right? Well, that's kind of the idea of what we see in this passage. And, and, and if, you, if you can't keep it, then what happens? If you desire to eat as you please, what does it tell? I mean, if you think about it this way, what does the gospel grant us? What liberty are we given through the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, who says that we can't partake or we can't abstain according to our own conscience? Who says that? Well, often we do. Often we're the ones Who say that? When we demand that our opinions over non-essentials be shared and personal convictions followed by our brothers and sisters, we forget the grace of the gospel. We may want our weaker brother liberated from what we consider legalism rather than respecting his own personal convictions. Conversely, we may hold that our personal convictions, well, we hold them in a sense of self-righteousness. I don't partake of that. In fact, that is licentiousness. And so we label the freedom that our brother and sister has according to our own convictions. The point is this, differing opinions and personal convictions over non-essentials can easily lead to strife in the church. Drawing lines, choosing sides, where no sides should be. Paul says, rather than quarrel over these opinions, quote, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Which is the equivalent of saying, follow your conscience. Why? Because on non-essential matters, the point is not food and it's not festivals. It's what? It's your heart. It's your motivation for why you do what you do. Because ultimately, all who are in Christ are servants of the Lord. And it is before Him that we stand or fall. And so in non-essentials, we enjoy, and I might add, we extend liberty to our brothers and sisters. Now, to some, I realize in hearing this, it may sound to you like ecclesiastical anarchy. What do you mean? Everyone's getting to follow their own personal convictions in non-essential matters. Good grief, John. Good grief, Paul. (laughs) But really what we see here is an understanding of mutual submission to one another in love. 
Our love for our brothers and sisters is far more important than holidays and food or drink. Paul reminds us that none of us, quote, lives to himself. (laughs) There's a newsflash for the modern Christian church, right? None of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. Meaning we are not our own, or as the Apostle Paul puts elsewhere, you and I who are in Christ, we were bought with a price. The purchase price was paid, so to speak, by the substitutionary atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The guarantee of our redemption in that purchase was His resurrection from the dead. And therefore, running the gamut of our existence from life to death, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. As a result, as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians, quote, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And it is this gospel truth that is so important and also establishing a distinction for unity in the church. Living in community with one another is not first and foremost about you. Living in the Greek word koinonia, living in fellowship together in the church is not about me. You might say, well, I I guess it's about us, isn't it? Nope. It's about Him. We live for Him. It's like when I perform a wedding up here. Move the pulpit out of the way. Insert put here. Woman here. Man here. They're all gazy-eyed standing up here in front. I'm not even sure if they're listening to anything I'm saying. But what I do say is, is that your marriage, the blessing upon your marriage, is not to see your responsibility first and foremost to one another. It's like a triangle. It's to the Lord first and through Christ to your spouse. In the same way, what Paul is teaching us here within the church, that we do no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. All that we do, all that we do is for our Redeemer. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. This means that what we do, we do not do out of our own self-interest, but for the benefit of the body of Christ, which includes submitting to one another in personal matters of liberty. But, it also includes coming together, unifying, as we would say, in our agreement on the essential tenets of the Christian faith. And while I could provide you a prosaic list of our essential doctrines, for the sake of brevity and beauty, consider what we profess in the Nicene Creed. In fact, listen carefully. 
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And everybody said... Amen. So we're familiar with the Nicene Creed, but the Creed, as we understand it, is not an exhaustive treatise, but it is a summary. It's a summary of the essential beliefs, the non-negotiables upon which we are united. So there are non-essentials on which we agree to disagree. And there are essentials on which... We must never disagree. There are things worth fighting for, and for these things, and I don't mean fighting for amongst ourselves, there are things of which we unite and fight for, and for these things we unite. As an example of this, of understanding the distinction of when it is right to fight for something or not, I think back to the history of the Presbyterian Church in America. And when we broke off from mainline Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterianism and the church was formed. And despite arguments to the contrary, embracing heresy is not unity. Now we hear that sometimes. I even hear that among evangelical circles. In which, why can't we just all get along? You know, why can't we just all agree? Look folks, there are essentials. And on these essentials, we will not, we will not, we will not stray. We will, as a local church, and Lord willing, as a denomination, we will continue to be united in these essential doctrines. And these these doctrines are worth fighting for, for the sake of the purity and peace of the church. Because ultimately, what we unite on is standing firm on the Word of God. And in this, we unite. But in non-essential matters, 
for most, if not all of us, I can only speak for myself, we can let our opinions cloud our clarity. Even considering, wait for it, even considering our personal opinions to be superior to the contrary. Elevated to the level of personal conviction, it can lead us to become adversarial despising or judging others even in the church, even our own brothers and sisters. Unchecked, we can become uncharitable to one another, especially with those who do not share our opinions on politics, on the economy, on what's the best show on Netflix. If you hadn't already canceled your subscription... The point is this, is that we so easily let those things that are non-essentials creep in and cause division. I am reminded of the counsel of one of my seminary professors who said that strife in the church typically happens not over significant doctrinal matters, but over insignificant matters of preference and sharp disagreement over the trivial. And he was right. And I have seen it firsthand. I wouldn't have believed him at the time. But I have seen it abounding in legalism or licentiousness. But I've never seen that strife be rooted in love. I've never seen it rooted in charity for one another. Here's the truth that we all need to hear. Here's the reality that we all need to open our eyes to. We are living the life that God has given. With all of its hardships and pleasures. With all of its tragedies and all of its joys. No one here is exempt from living. No one here is exempt from dying. And no one is exempt from standing before the judgment seat of God, which is exactly where Paul takes us, isn't it? And on that day, it will not be you or me seated on the judgment seat. It will be the one who humbled himself in humanity and in death. It will be the one whom death could not hold It will be the one who rose again in glory and under whom God put everything under subjection. Neither you nor me, but He is the one whom God has highly exalted and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Of God the Father. And it will be. Before the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will each give an account. And in that moment. Your highly exalted opinions. Will dissipate. Like vapors of insignificance. You will not despise your brother's eating or drinking habits. You will not debate your sister's worship calendar. You will not defend your preferences as superior over your brother or sister. In fact, 
You will not find fault with your brother or sister, but what will you do? You will look to your Savior. And when your mouth opens to give an account, you will speak only of what the Lord has done and what He is doing through you. Directing all honor and glory and praise to Him. And long gone will be all of those silly little opinions and even personal convictions that you found, oh, so very important. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not despise. Let us not pass judgment on one another, but love and live with one another in the Lord. Scripture tells us, let us encourage one another and build one another up. Scripture tells us, let us consider how to stir up one another. In what way? Scripture says, let us stir one another up in love and good works. And let us pray, oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn living for Thee and Thee alone, bringing Thee pleasure on Thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, forgive us when we have exalted our opinions and personal convictions to primary essential levels And we have caused strife in the church. Oh God, be gracious to us and have mercy upon us. May we indeed be united on the essentials. May we show liberty to one another in the non-essentials. And above all, in all things, let us show love to one another for Christ's sake. It is for in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.com dot org.